Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Companion Gundog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Geyer, and with me is Emily Shirey. How you doing, Emily? I'm doing well, Grayson. How are you doing? Man, we do the exact same thing. I know. I was trying to think of something else to we're say. Gonna, when... We're going to mix it up next time okay. because I've been listening to uh, the Murdoch Murders Podcast, uh, which um, if you're into true crime podcast, really compelling. But the young lady who does it has like this uh, ridiculously bad vocal fry. <laughs> and she and somebody gave her feedback on it like after the second episode and it went away and so it's a really good podcast but she opens it the same way every time and it is annoying okay and so i can so we got to change something. yeah i can imagine everybody's sitting there like oh hey i'm here your, we go again. whatever all right so i'm not going to do that anymore okay um today we are kind of doing a continuation of our puppy development podcast from last time we you you could tell if you listen to it we got to the end and uh and it was i had i was so ambitious about just basically putting all life stages of development into one podcast and we realized we needed to break it down into much smaller bites and so today we're going to discuss the importance of the crate and really just leave it at that um i'm sure other things will sneak in as they always do um but uh, but I think I know Emily believes this is probably one of the most, if not the most important thing we can leave our clients with, and I, I completely support that. And if if more people would use the crate, uh, I would say um, without prejudice, if they would use it just more often and use it in a more structured way their lives would be so much easier. And so with all of that said on my end, I'm going to kind of turn the floor over to Emily and she's going to take the lead on this one today. Thank you, Grayson. Um, feel free to chime in whenever. You know I will. <laughs> so I definitely believe that crate training is hands down the single most important thing you can do with your puppy or your adult dog. This is going to be all inclusive today. Whether your dog stays in your house or in your kennel or wherever, there are so many benefits to crate training beyond just being able to put them in a crate. And we're going to cover this, you know, pretty in depth. But something I saw recently was a dog trainer shared that the majority of your problems you have with your dog under a year old can be solved with crate training and putting them on a leash. And I find there to be so much truth in that. Crate training is so important for building resilience, for building coping mechanisms for dealing with frustration. So crate training is so much more than just putting your dog in a crate as a way to manage them. And that's important too. But it really goes into this whole mental emotional aspect that makes it so important. So I've got kind of an outline here and we're just going to kind of go through these topics, which Grayson will include in notes for after the podcast. Um, but for one, it's important for potty training puppies. So when you bring your puppy home, 
Whenever someone tells me they're struggling to potty train their puppy, first thing I do is ask, are you crating it? And a lot of times that's where the issue is coming from. So for one, if you're not crating your puppy and you're giving it a bunch of freedom in the house, it's going to have accidents. I'm, I can 100% guarantee you that. If your puppy has freedom to run around your house, they're going to potty. The majority of puppies, and this will boil down to genetics a little bit too, the majority of puppies do not like to pee and poop where they sleep. So if we're putting our puppies in small crates, meaning don't put your eight-week-old puppy in a 36-inch wire crate and expect it to not potty in there. If it can go potty in one corner of the crate and go lay in another, it will. So puppies need to be in a crate that's appropriate for their size, meaning that you might have to buy multiple crates as your puppy ages. That's the best thing you can do. They should be able to stand up, barely turn around, but not really move around a whole bunch in a crate when you bring them home. And as they age, once they're older, you can put them in a little bit of a bigger crate, but puppies need to be in small crates in order to not have accidents in it. Can we sit on puppies for just a while? And you may not be planning to advance just yet, but mm-hmm. before we move beyond puppies and potty training... I've got some questions because I know we kind of found, ran into some differences we had in our crate training in our last episode, and we really haven't spoken about that since. And so I'd kind of like to explore some of those and get your thoughts because sometimes I struggle with it. Sure. All right. Let's go. Okay. Do you ever or have you ever used some sort of liner for your crate? Great question. No, <laughs> never. <laughs> so this is really important. When you first bring your puppy home, I don't put anything in their crate. For one, no toys. That is completely off the table. Puppies eat toys and end up at ER vets having stomach surgery all the time for blockages. No toys in the crate. I don't care what it is. For two, no toys in the crate because crate is for sleep time. Crate is not for playtime. It is so, so important to distinguish that. You do not go in your crate to play, period. End of story. You come out to play, you go in your crate and you calm down. That is the whole point of the crate is you go in there and you calm down and you hang out. So absolutely no toys in the crate, period. Never, ever. Okay. But I want to get back to the line. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm getting there. I just had to make that point while I was thinking about it. So I also do not put towels, blankets, any potty pads, nothing in crates because you don't want to encourage potting on that. So if anyone's had a puppy, they know you can have hardwoods in your whole entire house and you have one rug and the puppy will pee and poop on the rug when they have accidents. Puppies love to potty on things like rugs and towels and blankets compared to hard surfaces. So when we put things like that in our crate, it's definitely more inviting for them to potty in it. So I don't do that when puppies first come home for that reason. And also because it is a great way to introduce your puppy to chewing on beds and blankets and stuff and getting away with it. With puppies, the whole rule of thumb is prevention is key. We cannot correct puppies for everything. So we have to prevent them from developing bad habits. So if you bring home an eight week old puppy and you put a towel in its crate and it starts chewing on it overnight and you don't see it and you don't take the towel out and the puppy doesn't get corrected, it learns when I'm in my crate, it's appropriate for me to continue to chew on things. Then you see it all the time on Facebook. Everyone has an adult dog that chews and destroys beds and everyone's trying to find the most chew proof bed. Well, why would you do that when you can just teach them not to chew beds by not giving them something to chew when they're young? So as they get older, so right now Toast is four months old. 
She got a blanket in her crate last night. She's through the most chewy phase. She's excellent in her crate. She loves it. She sleeps. She knows as soon as she goes in there, she needs to calm down. Now's an appropriate time for me to start giving her a blanket or a bed in there that's not going to be inviting for her to chew. And she already has that understanding that we go in the crate and we go to bed. Not that she's she's beyond the point of ever being frustrated in the crate. She's not going to redirect that frustration onto chewing anything in her crate. And so I've set the tone that we never chew things like that. Sure. And so if she's out and chews on something, she's going to get corrected for it or it's going to be taken away. But I'm beyond the point of worrying about her chewing anything in her crate. Obviously, we're not ever putting potty pads or anything that's going to be inviting for the dog to potty on in their crate because we don't want to establish that that's a good idea. Okay. So... So I get my eight-week-old puppy home, uh-huh. and I'm in the midst of establishing my my crate rituals. Um, my puppy on the first go potties in its crate, and maybe shows immediately that it has no trouble eliminating in the crate. What's the next move? So that is likely going to be a bit of a struggle. And like I mentioned, that can definitely be genetic. You have dogs like Toast, who has never, to this day, knock on wood, Peter pooped in her crate. Never. I obviously set her up for success, but I've done the same thing with other puppies of the same breed and not had the same success. So there's a genetic component to that. So when you get your puppy home and it's clear that you're doing the right things and they're still having some accidents, I'm sorry, that's genetics. The you, best. I'm sorry, and I'm sorry, I'm interjecting no. here, but I want to. I just want to capture these moments because I, I think we both, um, we've we've had similar experiences, which are diverse. Which I've had some puppies that don't want to pee or poop in the crate, and and you know, I I I struggle. I'm, I'm I always struggle when I speculate whether something's genetic or not. And I have always been somebody that tended in the age old debate of nature versus nurture towards the nature side, mm-hmm. because I've, I've seen, I am not a volhard service dog, um, uh, puppy razor type. If I have a litter I, I, I have like this hermetically sealed whelping unit where they have access to indoor outdoor and they all start messing on the whelping pad. And as they age, they tend to learn to go out onto the, uh, more sanitary surface, um, outdoors. And I almost without fault, without a lot of prompting, without any little plastic grass beds or anything like that, Uh my dogs, my puppies and and like I said, for the most part, because I've had some exceptions to this rule, I would say they've all been raised in a very similar fashion, which is relatively hands off. I handle mm-hmm. them at an appropriate age and I encourage others to do so when I feel like they're safe to do so. Um, the the number one priority f- for me for a litter of puppies is not to get them sick. So I'm, you know, I see other and I've I've worked at service dog agencies where they put, I mean, enormous amounts of time and effort into establishing potty routines, um, to having people handle those dogs all the time. And mine really aren't handled that way. They get my kid, they get a couple of other friends of the family as I feel like it becomes more and more safe. But for the most part, their entire world is going to be relegated for six weeks of their life to uh, a six foot run and a four foot whelping box. 
Um, and I, I do that unapologetically. I know a lot of people disagree with that. That's kind of where I am because it's, you know, and, but I also feel like I have a, a success, a successful track record in sending pups out into the world that succeed at their jobs and can be turned into house dogs, you know, with that, with relative ease. And so, uh, so I tend to agree with you on the nature aspect to some extent because mm-hmm. I've, I've witnessed it, but also do you think from the whelping box, from the breeder, the breeder can do anything to preclude that? Do you think people are doing things maybe by being too hands-on at the whelping box? And I know you're not, I mean, you, you know, that's not, you haven't done a lot of breeding or anything, but you, you do seem to have well-informed opinions. So yeah. I, I would be interested in just hearing your thoughts from zero to eight weeks of age, when they're with the breeder, what are breeders doing that set you up for success or not? Yeah, that's a great question. So a couple things here. You talked about you, the original question was your puppy from the get-go is potting and it's great. Yes. Let's just make a little asterisk and say, obviously, if they have a few accidents the first week while they're trying to figure out a new routine, and obviously, anytime a puppy is stressed, so this you know, is very applicable towards like maybe Malinois puppy owners versus lab puppy owners. If your puppy is... Um, you know, super stressed and anxious and awake all the time, they're going to be more likely to have accidents. If Screaming in the crate. Yes. And, and so and the more awake you are, the more agitated you are, the more likely that you are to have accidents. So if your puppy has some accidents the first few days, does not mean <laughs> you're set up, you know, for a lifetime of failure. That would be normal. But if it's clear, you know, you're in week 12. By week 12, puppies for me are always sleeping through the night without accidents. That's like my big cutoff. Like if we've got issues beyond that, if you're not. So if you're not sleeping seven, eight hours overnight without accidents at week 12, when I've set you up for success as much as possible, there's something more going on there than, you know, just, oh, you're having accidents still. That might be genetic. And then back to what you're saying, I do think that there's definitely influence from the breeders because there's absolutely no way that if you are raised in a environment where it's good to pee and poop where you sleep versus where you have the option to pee and poop where you don't sleep. There's definitely going to be a correlation to how you feel about going in your crate. So I really like Grayson's setup where the puppies can be inside, go outside, potty, the potty goes through the grates. Yeah. It's a um, poultry flooring before that. I used and I, we used to call it raising pups on wire. Mm -hmm. And it was the idea for, you know, I grew up and was influenced by guys that had big kennels that had a bunch of bird dogs and weren't, these dogs were never planning or they never, there were never plans for these puppies to become indoor house dogs. And so the idea behind raising pups on wire was simply sanitation. It was mm-hmm. to keep them out of their own feces and Which urine. Is a big benefit. Yep, keep them clean. And um, and they in they're what they call Scott kennels um, or or whelpers, depending on where you came from. Beagle guys would call them whelpers. Bird dog guys called them Scott kennels. But it was just a uh, kind of a doghouse, elevated doghouse um, with a. It was built in integrally to a outdoor run that the puppies would be on like a half inch wire um, and you could clean it easily. And so I have something similar to that. I just built an outbuilding that's climate controlled. So the whelping area and what will become the puppy's essential dog house um, 
is uh, is heated and cooled, and then they have the you know easy access to the outside to go out mm-hmm. to their quote unquote wire, which is now a, a plastic poultry flooring um, that doesn't you know grip or hold any any feces. And like I said, I mean to me, it's natural. The pups immediately, yes. I would say, very about, clear about four weeks of age are are now they will. When they're still with the mother and pre-weaning, mm-hmm. they're going to eliminate in the whelping area and she's going to clean up mm-hmm. after them. And about the time I wean is when I, and really I, it, I, sometimes it's closer to three weeks, sometimes it's closer to five weeks. It's all dependent on the mother and the puppies and, uh, and how tolerant she is of them and how willing they are to begin eating gruel and mo- and how mobile they become. And, and, uh, and it's, it, there is a congenital component you don't ever know exactly what it's going to be but i let it happen i let the mother and the puppies tell me what weaning is going to look like for them um and uh and sometimes the mom is just done and she won't tolerate them anymore and sometimes the puppies are become autonomous without even though she's still hanging on a little bit um but that again, like you know, just to go with Emily's point, is natural. They just tend to not want, you know, once they're once they're mobile, once they're freely moving in and out, they do not want to eliminate in the space they're sleeping and kind of generally loafing during the day and staying warm. So that's, I guess, that's my input on that. Yeah, and so I see a lot of um, breeders now using litter. Essentially, a lot of them are using um, pellet shavings that are actually for horses. And um, setting up an area where puppies can potty in the pellets, which seems to be a very natural thing for them to want to do. It's not like you have to teach them to do it, Um, whether that's inside their whelping box or I've seen a bunch of different configurations on how people are using litter. But it seems like the puppies naturally go to this litter and then they potty there and then have their separate play and sleep area. Um. And a lot of breeders, you know, start crate training the last couple of weeks before they come home too. And that's setting up puppies for success to be, you know, good in the crate and make that transition less stressful. And I'm sure those puppies are certainly set up for good potty habits too. Sure. Sure. So I definitely think, you know, picking your breeder is obviously super important and making sure the puppies haven't just been kept in a room where they're all pottying right where they sleep and eat and play. And that would definitely um, not set your puppy up for success regardless. And I think, you know, you know, last time we touched on, and I mean, we're going to hang up this, this topic is just going to go forever. I Mm -hmm. mean, this is obviously much more than crate. Um, At at this point, um, I, I, I commend any breeder that's putting a bunch of effort into their litters and there, and I would say that there are many, uh, in terms of the time and energy they're expending into their litters that are doing more than I am. Um, and it looks good. And I, I, again, I commend folks for being that way. I see, I think there are unintended consequences of people, of, of people that are breeding and not only doing it indoors, they're trying so hard to, I don't want to say it's about the image of what they're trying to do, but I think they're sometimes hindering their puppies mm. by doing everything in such a self-contained area, maybe mm. inside in this, you know, they're cleaning it a thousand times a day, um, which obviously it's important to keep the puppies clean. I think there are systems that you can put into place to allow that to happen in a much more free way. And I think sometimes it's not allowing the puppies to learn, hmm. you know, and that's just, yeah. a, and that's a guess. I mean, 
I, I don't know, but I do see, I see puppies, some puppies that come from really nice high end breeding programs that struggle with some of these behaviors we're mm-hmm. talking about. And I want, and I'm just, it's a guess at yeah. the end of the day of why that's occurring. Yeah, definitely. And especially with, you'll never be able to differentiate what's genetic and what's. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's the thing. It's, I mean, I, to me, congenital is an easier word because mm-hmm. we don't know if it's passed down mm-hmm. from dirty parents that just, mm-hmm. because we're not selecting if it's just, if, if all they have ever been for generations is kennel dogs and they've never had to be house dogs. Yeah, or, I do think that comes into play. Yeah, or if there's some environmental stuff at play. And I mean, the, the further, the further along I get into this, the more I believe that environment plays a factor. It's just, it's, there's so much minutia um, in regards to, what what we mean when we say environment, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's it's tough to it's always t- tough to put a finger on it exactly, but um, but certainly, yeah, I mean that's we're we're getting really really deep on that puppy mm-hmm. topic coming from the breeder, those first first ones, but you also you got to something that I think is really important, and you gave a timeline, which is twelve weeks, essentially mm-hmm. a month of being home with you, that you're expecting your puppies to sleep through the night mm-hmm. and stay clean in their crate. Mm-hmm. Can you expand a little more on? what your ritual is, what that month looks like getting to, to, to that place. Yeah. Um, so we discussed this a little bit in the last podcast, so I don't want to cover this too much and reiterate too much, but essentially when a puppy comes home at eight weeks old, all of our timeline is going to be crate outside, inside, outside crate or crate outside crate, depending on when, um, you know, I don't obviously let my puppies inside in the middle of the night or they're inside, but I don't let them have free time inside. That's what I mean by inside. So they're in their crate inside. I take them outside to potty. If it's during the day and they're going to have some free time, they come back inside only after they've pottied outside. Then they go back outside before I put them in their crate. So overnight for an eight week old puppy kind of depends on the puppy you know, it's breed and what it's setup has been like and what um, kind of what I'm seeing day one. But likely that's going to be for one, I cut off water a couple hours before bed. Um, I'm sure that's controversial. It's what I do. Sure. It's setting my puppy up for success to not have accidents overnight. So what it might look like is five o'clock they eat dinner. Puppies should be eating three meals a day up until they're the six months old. If I'm feeding um, a lot, I will feed breakfast and lunch to be bigger meals, dinner to be a smaller meal. They eat at five. Um, They're allowed to have water until seven. At seven, I take up water. They get multiple opportunities to go out before bed. So I let them have some water at seven and they go outside. Then maybe they go out again at eight and maybe they go out again at nine and maybe they go out again at 10. That might be realistic for a fresh eight-week-old puppy. Then depending on the puppy again, if I'm letting them out at 10, I'm likely letting them out at two and six. Gotcha. So you're setting an alarm. You're waking yes. up uh, at 2 yes, a.m. But that's, I I mean, uh-huh. that's part of puppyhood. That's part of puppyhood. So I don't just want to wait and see if you wake me up. That's really important to me. When you're eight weeks old, you have to go overnight. And if I can wake you up and us not establish that you vocalizing gets you out of your crate, wow, I will important. really try to set that up. I, and I, I'm going to stop it there just because I have so many clients tell me, oh, they wait. They let me know when it's time. Yeah. yeah. Nope. That is a hard pass for me. So important. So I set them up by doing food, food at five, water pickup at seven, out at seven, eight, nine, ten. I know you do not have to pee between ten and two. Sure. So if you're not doing this routine, it might not work for you. 
But I know if you go out and you potty at seven, eight, nine, and 10, you do not have to pee between 10 and two. So if you cry between 10 and two, too bad. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, we're stopping at a lot of places, but these are sticking points. These are things that I hear <laughs> yes. all the time. So we have a vocalizing puppy, say at eight weeks when we mm-hmm. put it directly into the crate. Oh yeah. And it is absolutely, it's going to scream. It's going to sound like it's dying. It's going to chew on the crate. It's going to be terrible. And everyone's going to say, my puppy can't be crated. Yeah. It's freaking out. That is 100% normal. They have to work through that. You have to turn that part of your brain off. That And it's not the empathy part of your brain. It's the I'm aggravated to the point yes. that my behavior is going to change. Yes. So, you know, you need to mentally prepare for that before you bring your puppy home. You're going to have to listen to a lot of screaming, at least for the first two weeks. Now, probably. Is there anything, and I've got, and we discussed it a little bit in the last podcast. I've got some systems for me personally. Mm-hmm. I put them out of sight. I put them mm-hmm. in a range of here. Yeah. <laughs> some people can't do no. that. No, no, most people can. So, you know, my kennel room is on um, a lower level of my house, but I'm for sure hearing them. So earplugs are definitely the way to go. Um, Sweet. All right. So, so I do the out at 10, out at two, out at six. You're the first couple nights, maybe even the first week, depending on the puppy, it's going to scream and carry on at two. You have to stay strong. They have to learn. They have to go back to bed. And so at some point, usually I start playing around at times with what time I let them out. So for one, I don't want to become predictable that you go out every night at 2 a.m. Because that's a big hard habit to fix and um i'm definitely you know especially when we're getting to 11 12 weeks old i'm not getting up at 2 a.m so sometimes one time sometimes three in that first month yep and it depends on to how the night has gone so if i'm really tired and i want to go to bed at nine i'll let you out at nine and then i might let you out at one and then i might let you out at six or around 10 to 11 weeks i start playing with you know six hours yeah so you know when i let you out at 10 i'll let you out at 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, and then again at 6. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, it's obviously good for me to get my sleep too. So I start playing around with you staying asleep for longer periods of time, and you still might need to go out overnight. But I try not to make it predictably too once you're beyond like 10 weeks old. Okay. <laughs> um, And then usually once you potty in the morning at 6, this is, you know, maybe a downside that um, has been a complaint for people that live with me. Um, Usually we're up at six and puppies are typically pretty wild in the morning and I let them be. And how you handle that is up to you and your lifestyle. I'm up at six every day, no matter what. So for my dogs to be crazy at six doesn't bother me because that's when I get up. If you are someone that eventually wants to sleep in till eight or nine with your puppy, you should put them back in the crate at six and let them get in the habit of sleeping at that time. You mean not in your bed with you and snuggle? No, 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 no. As much as I love that, believe me, um, I am a very big advocate for dogs in my bed. That does not happen until later in life. You have to first prove to me that A, you can be in your crate anytime, any day, any place, anywhere and be chill. You don't get the privilege of bedtime with me unless you are totally cool in your crate and you also don't get the privilege of being in my bed if you cannot sleep all night without potting or without crying so toast is four months old and she has been exceptionally good she is an exception to the rule she is not the rule she does sleep on my bed (laughs) occasion at four months old because she is like 
star child. Sure. But you know, if envy, envy is vocal. And so no, envy would not be in my bed at four weeks old because she's the kind of dog that at 6am is making noise in her crate saying, Hey, get up. It's time to let me out. That does not fly with me. You do not get rewarded for that. And you do not, you do not get to go out. So that's, you don't get rewarded for that. And you don't get privileges like being in my bed. If you're vocal in the morning. Well, and we've, and we've, you know, covered this several times throughout the history of this podcast, but you know, if there's, there's always a feedback loop and, um, and, the perfect example of a dog driving an owner or handler's behavior is vocalizing from the crate and mm-hmm. and having something happen. Yep. And and so that's where it starts. And yep. I mean, I think Absolutely. that behavior, I and I think that's a broader concept of that puppy learning to manipulate your behavior. A hundred percent. So this is, we're kind of switching gears now and talking about why the crate's important. Yeah. And for one, just like Grayson said, they learn that they cannot manipulate your behavior. So, When your puppy is doing something in their crate that you don't like, practice non-reinforcement. Don't tell your puppy, shh, it's okay, or hey, quit that. Do not engage them at all. No touch, no talk, no eye contact. No banging on the crate, no No. screaming. Nothing. (laughs) Completely ignore them. Non-reinforcement. Because sometimes, this is a broader subject too, sometimes things that we don't think are reinforcing can be reinforcing. So us telling our puppy, hey, knock it off. If they're whining because they want our attention, they got our attention. Even if we mean it in a, you know, a naughty way, they're still getting our feedback. So no touch, no talk, no eye contact when your puppy is doing something in their crate you don't like. And for the most part, there's no reason for you to ever engage your puppy in their crate. You should never be touching or talking to them or trying to do anything with your puppy when they're in their crate. You just completely ignore them. Um, So... Crating is not only good for potty training, it's good and not only good for creating the structure and routine that we've talked about extensively now, it's super good for creating um, self-soothing and coping mechanisms, meaning your puppy understands how to deal with frustration. This is a life concept that starts with crate training. No matter who you are, what kind of dog you have, what your life looks like, your puppy will encounter stress at some point. This goes for children. This goes for puppies. You cannot keep them in a bubble their whole life. There will be stressful things that your puppy has to endure. No matter what you do, it's bound to happen. So if we can start with our puppies and teach them when stressful things happen, the way out is through relaxing and being calm. We are setting our puppy up for success for a lifetime of good coping mechanisms. This is the number one thing you get out of crate training and it has very little to do with the actual crate it has everything to do with understanding that when you're quiet and you're calm and you're relaxed good things happen when you're freaking out when you feel stressed when you feel anxious you don't get what you want you have to build that resiliency so why i don't take dogs that aren't crate trained for training with me part of it is because they get so stressed at my house that they can't They can't cope. They can't manage. They get so stressed being in their crate that we can't really accomplish any training because obviously when you're in that fight or flight, you're not (laughs) when your sympathetic nervous system is taking over, you're in no place to learn anything new. Yeah. And so I feel like people are throwing their money away. If you're not in a good place to learn anything new, um, 
you might as well not even be with me. So it's really important that dogs understand how to deal with stress. And the easiest way is through crate training. So you see this a lot. When dogs aren't crate trained, they don't understand how to deal with micro stresses. So you put a slip lead on a dog for a first time and it's only been on a harness and it's only ever been allowed freedom in the house and it feels some sort of restraint, it will freak out. Alligator rolling, biting at the leash, screaming. And really this is not anything painful. It's not anything crazy, but they don't understand how to deal with discomfort. They don't understand how to manage their emotions. That's really important. They have no resiliency. I think that's a really um, interesting correlation to draw. And I, I think if we break it down t- to to a real base level, we're talking barrier frustration and opposition reflex. Yep. And, uh, and that there is uh, a relationship between those two issues. So yes, w- when absolutely. I say barrier frustration... You know, kind of the classic example is think of a dog behind a fence and maybe another dog walks by and a dog that would not be considered classically aggressive can show an a, a, an extremely aggressive response. And we have, we basically, I always liken it to the, um, draw the metaphor of kind of two guys in a bar fight, <laughs> right? And and it, and they're kind of making eyes at each other and making eyes at each other, cutting eyes at each other. They're getting <laughs> that, you know, the, the energy in the room is coming up. And, uh, and if they were left to their own devices, who knows what would happen, but the moment somebody intervenes and kind of holds holds one back, back, then all of a sudden everything comes unglued. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, that behavior can certainly be learned at an early age behind the wall of a crate. Absolutely. And then, and the same thing holds true for being at the end of a leash. You know, if you're tugging at the end of that leash, you're pulling against me, you're, we're, we're building frustration. Yep. And so by learning to not be frustrated in your crate, mm-hmm. uh, it's you know at a very very young age, and to not be frustrated at the end of a lead, um, uh, you know we are now like like you said, you're learning coping mechanisms for life in general. Not not only how to deal with frustration, but how to increase that threshold to drive that threshold for frustration up. Yes, absolutely. So, so That's so important. Yeah, and that, and that is, I mean, and that that carries over for the rest of their lives. And, absolutely, and it never is not important. Right. It, and it can and it can always regress, you know. So if we get you know a dog that comes into training with me, um, or Emily, you know, it, it may act a certain way with me, but as soon as it gets on a flat lead with you, it may go back to its life. And so mm-hmm. these management tools are really important that they carry over. Yeah. So when we talk about stress and dealing with stress, I think it's important to identify that stress can be a whole variety of things. Sure. So if we're talking about big stress, let's say you're moving. Crating can be your best friend. So if you take or, you know, adopting rescue dogs, those kinds of things where you've got big life changes, big stress events, crating is always going to be their one place where they feel safe, where they can be calm. That so if environment we, never changes. That environment never changes, regardless of if you are, you know, where you're moving. You can move across the country. They've got their one safe spot that they feel comfortable in. Yeah. And you you can't predict that, right? You can't say, oh, I'm never going to move. My dog doesn't need to be crated. You can't predict that. Other kinds of stress are um, injuries. This is so big for me. When people don't crate train their short hair, the first thing I think about is what the heck are you going to do when your short hair injures itself? Because it's not if, it's when. Sure. And your dog has to be, you know, crate, you know, if they blow a CCL, 
they're created for eight to 12 weeks. What are you going to do with that dog? You're going to have to drug it out of its mind in order to keep it calm for eight to 12 weeks. Yeah, because not only now are you trying to crate train later in life, (laughs) you're trying to crate train a dog that's already experiencing much higher levels of stress than it would normally be. And you're, you're really setting that dog up for failure by not having the established, you can be calm in here um, already. You're just adding everything together. So you can, also cannot predict that. You can't say my dog is not crazy. They'll never be injured. Stuff happens no matter what. That also goes for at the vet. Whether you ha- are getting your dog spayed or neutered or they have to spend an emergency night at the vet, those times are already stressful. And having a dog that's not crate trained, I... Will guarantee you your dog is or your vet is not going to let your dog stay loose in their clinic. Yeah. They absolutely can't. Your dog will absolutely be created at the clinic. Yeah. At the trainers, if you are sending your dog to a trainer and you want it to stay in a trainer's house, meaning not in a kennel, I don't know a single trainer in the country that does not create dogs. It's a liability issue. We cannot have dogs we don't know loose in our house. For one, it's not safe. <laughs> with other dogs that they yeah. don't know, with yeah. your dogs, with, with the other dogs that, dogs. you know, I always get two client dogs at a time and they stay together with me for their program together. I like situating it like that. Imagine me having two dogs that I don't know, that don't know me, that don't know my dogs loose together in my house. That's absolutely never going to happen. Sure. So if you're sending your dog to a trainer, and maybe this isn't the goal, but stuff happens, they have to be crate trained. If they aren't, like I said, if you're going to try to not crate train your dog and then send it to a trainer to be crate trained, your dog is going to experience so much more stress because they're, then they're going to be stressed being in someone new's house, separated from their family, in this environment where that might be chaotic. There might be other dogs that are whining and barking. And then on top of that, they're not comfortable in a crate. So at the end of the day, <laughs> big stress events, you can always come back to being comfortable in your crate. So let me, let me ask real quick before we move beyond that too far. You know, you you said you're not currently, you don't accept clients that don't have dogs that aren't already crate trained. And, And I, I think I understand why, which is you can't in that you're dealing with the stress of trying to crate train a dog as you're trying to train the dog. And it's, and it's more than most dogs can, can bite off at one time. Correct. Is it worth if you have not built that kind of structure and ritual into your dog's life at this point, just paying a trainer to crate train your dog and that's it. No expectations of any other behaviors. I mean, would they come in, you know, you have to understand like, Hey guy, like, um, I appreciate the fact that you want your dog trained, but we got six weeks of crate training to do before we even Mm -hmm. start thinking of leash behaviors. Right. So what I would expect, if you're going to pay someone to crate train your dog, for one, it should be expensive because that poor trainer is going to deal with all the shit you didn't want to deal with. (laughs) So you need to compensate them for the lack of work you put into your dog. If you're rescuing a dog and they're not crate trained, that's a different story. <laughs> but if you raised a puppy, decide not to crate train, and now you want to crate train it now, I commend you for taking that effort. But someone else needs to be compensated for the work you didn't do as a puppy. Yeah. So, so, and I, I think that's a really important point is it's, it's harder for us as trainers to go back and ritualize a dog that has not been ritualized mm-hmm. to that point than Absolutely. it is for us to actually take it and make, train it. 
yes. to be obedient. Yes. And so I think training and great training can go hand in hand in some regards, obviously providing structures like saying, hey, you don't get freedom of the house anymore. Yeah. You have to be in your crate. You go to place. You have free time outside. You come back in. You go to place. So I wouldn't expect a trainer to only create train, but I would expect to compensate them more and for it to be a much longer program. You I know, cannot. I've heard of programs out there. Yeah. I've heard of, uh, I know it's one, I don't know who it is. There's somebody that does this in the Charlotte area that basically they just potty train your dog. You send them for a month. That's <laughs> what they say. And they, they spend a month just potty training. Yeah. It's just create ritual. Yep. You know, and, and, um, and that becomes potty training. And yep. And know, I would consider crate training a behavior modification program for an adult dog which means it costs more and it takes longer but at the same time i feel like there should be some obedience going into that too because chances are you have no this is why i don't take on crate trained dogs you have no coping mechanisms so i already know if you're not crate trained you're gonna freak out in your crate you're gonna be stressed on a leash anytime i give you any sort of structure it's going to be a huge meltdown because you don't understand how to deal with those things yeah and i mean it's you know you you used a term there that i hear a a lot more now than i used to um, growing up in a, in a home with a clinical psychologist, BMOD behavior modification was, was, you know, a common term in, in that professional vernacular, not so much in the dog training world. But I think mostly when we think of that, we're dealing with pathological behaviors. We're talking aggression. We're talking, you know, fear-based anything. And, uh, at the end of the day, behavior modification gets back to what we always do describe it's it's not complex it's not some you know it's not a um even though it's it's commonly used now as a marketing term all we're talking about is making a normal dog out of your dog (laughs) with pathological behaviors which is give it structure give it ritual give it a regular lifestyle let it be a dog yep um and 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 that's prior to us teaching it to sit stay you know go somewhere, do whatever. Totally. You know, and, yep. and um, yeah, so imp- important to note. So if you're out there and you're dealing with these kind of things, your first step, great. Yes, 100%. That, I mean, that's going to be game changing alone. And along with that place, which is a crate without physical boundaries, yep. but um, maybe what I call mental boundaries. Sure. Um, is also really important. There's, um, there's been a big, you know, been a lot of t- talk on these things in the dog training industry recently. And, and there's some things I really agree with. I, I, I love to listen to trainers, uh, that, um, it seems for whatever reason, like pr- protection sports backgrounds, it, it, there's, there's a culture of kind of gurus out there and they tend to pick on pet trainers every once in a while. Uh, and I'm specifically thinking of, and I don't mean pick on, but there are, there are things that become trendy in the pet training world. And they're things that I use constantly, crate, place, mm-hmm. th- and things like mm-hmm. that. And, and recently I was listening to a podcast, uh, with Ivan Balabanov and I really, really like his podcast, but he was kind of saying like, Hey, you know, you, you go to the pet trainer now and all you get is crate place structured walks <laughs> and it's like and you're missing dog time you're missing just relationship building with your dog mm-hmm. and i think i i think he ha- that's a fair criticism mm-hmm. but i also think that it's easy to snipe when all you're dealing with is well-adjusted dogs a hundred percent and so um, I think he's absolutely right. If you look at my dogs and you look at Emily's dogs and you look at the dogs that we've had long-term as client dogs, they are 
going out on their own with less and less rules as as time goes on. And it's important to take that dog out for just a walk and to let it be and to not always have something fun with it. Yeah. Just, and, and play games and not always have a training objective in mind. And sometimes those your best training sessions come Mm -hmm. from those moments when you're You're freestyling and you're Mm -hmm. having fun. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and, 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 you know, I mean, I don't want to digress too deeply on that, but it's it's also something to note. We're trying to get to that place through this heavy, heavy structure of having your relaxed, well-adjusted dog that you can now allow to explore more freedoms. Yes. You know, and that's, yes. that's the end goal. Exactly. So two things on that. I know you and I both tell owners for four weeks or so when your dog comes home, yep. you have to give them routine and structure. That is the most important thing you can do when your dog comes home from Grace and I. And that is not me. That is not um, long term. And I, I'm very upfront with my clients about this. Yeah. You do not have to place your dog for eight hours a day long term. Yeah. But here's the key. If your dog is not making good decisions on their own, you have to make good decisions for them. And chances are, if your dog's making a lot of good decisions, it's not in training with me. That's for sure. Sure. You're not spending the money on training for a dog that's making really great decisions on their own. So chances are there's some issues there, whether or not it's, you know, as big of issue as aggression, probably not with me, but if your dog is running around your house and you can't keep them calm or they're chewing up things or they're peeing and pooping when you don't want them to in the house, they're not making the good decisions you want them to. So we need to make good decisions for them. Crate and place are the best way to make good decisions for them. Yeah, It allows all of your outside interactions, interactions when they are not in the crate yes. or not on the place board yes. to happen with intent. Yes. With and, supervision and, yep. yeah. and, and it gets to the point going back to Blavinov's podcast, which I love. He did his most recent episode and I, and I would encourage anybody to go out and find that it's training without conflict is the name of that podcast. His most recent episode with, was with a gentleman named Peroni. I can't recall his first name is a behaviorist, um, from West Virginia university. And, uh, the focus of most of Ivan's things are on this ongoing debate between the force free community and the quote unquote balance community. But that, you know, and, and that was kind of the, the, the focus of that conversation, but they said some things that I thought were extremely important to this conversation, which were self-satisfaction being a major issue. And yes. if we're it, it, the it, training or, or, all behaviors. So any bad behavior, and this was a great point, at some point was likely positively reinforced. And that may not be by you. When mm-hmm. we talk of training, when we talk of reinforcement, we're talking about the, and and this goes back to our very first podcast, we're talking about the interaction between the organism, in this case being the dog, and its environment. That's training. We intervene as trainers to manipulate the environment, not the dog. And so when your dog is not in a crate and not being directly supervised, it is freely interacting with its environment and it is developing behaviors that are going to be patterned. That's why this is important. Mm -hmm. And so if you're telling me, well, my dog's doing great and it's not in the crate all the time, it doesn't have to be, well, my mind immediately goes to the fact, well, something out there is happening for better or worse. Your dog's developing patterns of behaviors Mm -hmm. that may creep up later. Yep. Yep. And that's a big one. You know, people often say, (laughs) 
Well, they're fine as puppies for whatever reason, and then they start to do something when you're not home. Yep. They chew on the window seals. They chew up your furniture, those kinds of things. And then at that point, that behavior has been reinforced. It's conditioned. And then they understand that this is something I'm allowed to do. And then we have to go back and try and create train them after the fact. Whereas why would you put yourself through that when you can just set them up for success and never ruin your windowsills and furniture and you have a dog that's very well adjusted? Yeah. And this goes for dogs coming into my kennel environment. You know, I mean, we talked about it earlier, may not be as important, but to me it is. I mean, it's, uh, you know, when I have a well-adjusted, well-adapted dog that comes into my place, maybe never existed in a kennel before in its life, it may experience some stress when it first goes into that kennel environment, but it adapts very quickly Mm -hmm. and very well. Mm -hmm. And you can see them. You come into the kennel. And you got some dogs that are freaking out because it's bird war time. Yeah. <laughs> but every once in a while, you just get that dog that's like just mellow and happy to do whatever. And you can just see it. And so, you know, it, it's it, whatever environmental factors are at play there. Um, good. A good upbringing that it, that involves not having free access to the environment um, will allow your dog to adapt later on, regardless of whatever Absolutely. situation yep. it's in. Makes them so much more resilient. Yeah. Um, along with that, crating is great for preventing separation anxiety, which is um, very, very problematic in recent times with especially COVID puppies. Yep. Um, it is not great to be home all day, every day with your dog out of their crate. And while that may seem like an ideal situation for a lot of us, it's not. <laughs> Especially, you know, chances are you have a bird dog. If you're listening to this podcast, bird dogs are very prone to separation anxiety, visuals and short hairs in particular. If you aren't providing enough separation, your dog will develop separation anxiety. And that is, in my opinion, my least favorite behavior to fix. Let's say that one more time. If you're not providing separation you are headed towards separation anxiety. It's counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. But it's really important. We have to, these dogs have to learn what it means to be separated mm-hmm. from us early on, yep. or at least, you know, in, in some sort of structured fashion. Yep. So if you work from home, that's totally fine, but your dog needs to be created a good portion of that day away from you. And so I, I recommend creating dogs as often as you can, wherever you can, puppies in particular. So that means sometimes they're created where they can see you. Sometimes they're created where they can't see you. Sometimes they're created in the car. Sometimes they're created in the living room. Sometimes they're created in a different room. Sometimes they're created at a friend's house. I think it's important to establish the crate is the same and your behavior is the same no matter where we are. Just because you can see me does not mean you get to come out of your crate. That's really important. Yeah. Um, and so preventing separation anxiety is extremely important by setting them up to be separate from you. And if you have never experienced separation anxiety and you do not understand how problematic it is, feel free to reach out because, uh, you know, I can tell you about all sorts of problems. But what it boils down to is if your dog has separation anxiety and can't be created, it means you will never leave your dog. So common um, inquiries I get for from people with dogs with separation anxiety look something like this. My husband and I can't go to dinner because one of us always has to be home with the dog or my family can't take vacation because someone has to be home with the dog or, you know, I can no longer have the furniture I want because my dog will destroy it when I leave. 
So if you're thinking, oh, I would love my dog to be with me all the time, believe me, my dogs are with me a lot, but they are also totally fine not being with me. And that's really important. And it may not seem like a big deal until you experience it, but it's really heartbreaking in my opinion when it disrupts people's lives to the point they can't do normal activities like go to the grocery store without someone being home with a dog. It's wild. Yeah. So I think we're we're, dig- we're we're really digging deep into what could become an ethical and philosophical conversation about the relationship between humans and dogs. And I will share my perspective quickly because I think it's pertinent and and I don't expect everybody listening to share the same perspective, but I'm a believer in behaviorism, which means um, from a radical behaviorist perspective, all we can control is nurture. We can only control the environment. So we get what we get dealt genetically and the rest of it's up to us to modify um, behaviorally. And that's through manipulation of the environment. So we have that. That's number one. Number two is an evolutionary psychology perspective. And that is man and dog co-evolved to some extent over, you know, how many ever millennia. And I believe that that relationship was always one-sided to begin with. That if if dogs had not proven their value to humans, then we would have won <laughs> had it been an issue between competing species. And so we learned to not be in competition with one another by helping each other. And man ended up being the one that facilitated that because had we needed to compete with each other, humans would have outcompeted dogs. Um, and, and they would have at least learned to stay away from us. Um, because we've got opposable thumbs and big brains and we can make fire, you know, and that's, that's why it exists that way. And so with that being said, we've come down the millennia to this point where we no longer need to hunt our food to survive. We no longer need to, uh, to exist and exposed to the environment the way we did it, it, at distant times in our lives, we no longer have to live as pragmatically. And we tend to get confused about what our relationships with dogs has been to get to this point. And, and really what I'm getting at is, um, dogs, in my opinion, exist to enrich human lives and not the other way around. And if you find yourself in a situation where you're existing to, to only make your dog's life more comfortable, then you're not living a traditional lifestyle, human lifestyle as as it relates to a dog. And that's okay. That's your choice. If you want to be somebody who dedicates your life to the comfort of your animal, that's fine. If you're somebody that would rather have your life enriched by your animal, then it's going to require you taking responsibility as uh, as the, the organism in charge. So along with that, I think that's a perfect opportunity to say, are we adding comfort to our dog's life by not teaching them coping mechanisms? So while you may think being home with my dog all the time is adding comfort to their life by me sacrificing going to dinner with my husband is adding comfort to my dog's life, do you think that dog's emotional well-being 
is better than a dog that's completely comfortable whether you're at home or not. There's definitely deeper conversation here that we're even, you know, this is relationships between humans and humans, between humans and dogs. But at the end of the day, if you are making yourself uncomfortable to make your dog more comfortable, and I could even say if you're making yourself uncomfortable to make your child more comfortable or your spouse more comfortable, then the odds are, in my opinion, you're, you're fanning an ember of resentment in yourself. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I just, at the end of the day, I want my dogs to be emotionally comfortable, regardless of if I'm in the picture or not. And some of the most well-adjusted dogs within a half a mile of us right now are sitting in a kennel. Yep. 100%. (laughs) Exposed to the environment. Um, they may not be, you know, they may not turn around and transition into perfect house dogs, but when you, when you look at those dogs, you're not going to see pathologically depressed animals. You're not going to see pathologically aggressive animals. Anxious. Anxious. You're going to see dogs that are excited to get out and go to work, excited to get out and interact with me, excited to just be dogs. Um, and so, you know, let's stop hanging our emotional baggage on our animals. Yep. Yep. So dogs are... Love crates <laughs> um, when allowed to do so, right? Yeah. So, of course, your eight-week-old puppy, I can guarantee you, is not going to go in your crate and be like, ah, I love this. But when we give them the opportunities to love it, they will. I had company over on Saturday night. My four-month-old puppy was in her crate for dinner. I let her out. She walked out, saw my company, and went, meh, and went right back in her crate and went to sleep. <laughs> Good enough. So, yeah. So dogs will love crates when given the opportunity to. Yeah. So moving on, um, anything else you want to add before we go into crate sizing, brands, those kinds um, of things? N- no. You know, just a reiteration of the, why we're doing this. And, and we, it's, it's a broken record, but here it is. You know, it's a management tool that becomes a lifestyle tool, which drives thresholds for stress up and allows our dogs a higher quality of life. There is, you know, the 30 day window that we give our clients when they go home, crate when fully unsupervised, place board when semi-supervised, and only loose on the ground when you're giving them 100% of your attention. Yep. That 30 days is a 28-day habit-building program as if you were going to a drug rehabilitation program or anything else. And once you've accomplished that, then you can begin to experiment with a freer form of lifestyle, but you always have that to lean back on. You could always fall back into your ritualized lifestyle. So that's, we've, we've beat that horse till we can't beat it anymore. Mm -hmm. But if you come away with anything, that's the important thing. But I do think there are some technical aspects of the crate that need to be covered before we end this. Mm -hmm. And so I'll yield to you on that. Okay. Um, Sizing again, especially with puppies, it's important to not have a crate that's too big. You should, your puppy should be able to stand up, barely turn around and lay down. Um, that's it. If it's too big, your puppy will potty in it. Um, for adult dogs that are, are potty trained that are fine in it, it's fine to have something bigger, but a lot of dogs prefer small crates. My 50 pound short hair often goes into, um, <laughs> Toast's teeny little medium crate that she can barely get in and she sleeps in there with the door open, loves it. Um, brands. I prefer airline crates, which are the plastic crates compared to wire crates. 
If you've got a wire crate and that's the best you can do, use it. Reasons why I don't particularly love wire crates and why I don't use them. For one, they're messy. If you've ever cleaned explosive diarrhea out of a wire crate, you will understand. It gets on everything. It's super hard to clean. It doesn't contain explosive. It does not contain it. Um, And, you know, if they do have a pee accident, it's so easy to carry a a contained airline crate out to the hose versus trying to pick that pan up and get it through the doorway. It's it's not fun. Um, For two, especially with puppies, puppies are going to chew on the wires. There's no doubt about it. And I don't like to reinforce that behavior. So if they have a plastic crate that they can't really chew on, I prefer that so that it's not established that chewing on the crate is acceptable. Um, For three, some dogs can get out of wire crates. And once a dog learns they can get out of a wire crate, it's really hard to get them to go back to relaxing in the crate. If they learn that they don't want to be in there and they can get out, you're going to have a really hard time getting them to settle back in the crate. So preventing them from getting out is really important. Um, For three or for four, I guess, I have seen some injuries with wire crates with dogs getting stuck in the wires. Um, Makes me worried. I would not put client dog in it for that reason. So I prefer airline crates, but again, at the end of the day, if you, if all you have is a wire crate, you you know, that's better than nothing. I think it's important to crate dogs versus just keeping them in puppy pens or in a specific room in the house. While I am a big fan of puppy pens, we call them puppy jail and I use them. I use them in conjunction with my crate. So Grayson talked about hundred percent supervision means you can be free Somewhat supervision means you can be on place. No supervision means you're in your crate. I use that same concept for puppies. Between 100% supervision, you're out in my house. Zero supervision, you're in your crate. Some supervision, maybe like why I'm watching dinner. If you were an adult, you'd be on or making dinner. If you were an adult, you'd be on place. Puppies, I'll put in an X pen. So again, I'd never give my puppies toys in their crate. So if I want you to hang out, while I make dinner, but I don't have 100% supervision, you might hang out in the play, uh, the puppy pen and have a toy. That is not a replacement of the crate. For one, I don't think it teaches the same concepts. For two, your dog still needs to learn how to be crated for all the reasons we discussed at the vet, at the trainers, riding in the car, all those things. Um, location of the crate, I get asked this a lot. Whether or not you put it in your bedroom, I feel like is up to you. I do not do that because I do not want to hear you whine or move or roll over or chew on your crate, whatever you're going to do. I don't want to hear that. If you want to put it in your bedroom, that's fine. But again, like we talked about at the very beginning, just because you're whining does not mean you get to get out. So if that's going to annoy you and you're going to let your puppy out when you hear that whining, don't put your crate in your bedroom. You can certainly be exacerbating uh, some sort of codependence, Mm -hmm. you know, so just because the puppy is in, in a crate, it's still in your presence. Yep. And, and that's one of the things we're looking, we got to create that separation to prevent separation anxiety. Yep. And then finally, just a couple questions that I get frequently. Are there puppies that can't be crate trained? In my opinion, no. If you have a vet (laughs) that tells you, you have a dog that couldn't be crate trained, please find another vet and find a trainer to work with. Every puppy, in my opinion, needs to be crate trained. I do not buy into the number of times I hear people say, I tried the crate and it didn't work. You didn't work. You, something you did did not work. It's not the dog. It's you. That's fair. Now, with that being said, mm-hmm. we get back to the genetic thing, mm-hmm. m- messiness. Mm-hmm. And I have had one Malinois in my life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And and so there, there are. There are dogs out there. And and. 
I ended up selling this dog on uh, to a working dog vendor that that trained police dogs, and this dog actually ended up killing itself in a in an open kennel. Um, died of uh, uh, suspected heat casualty. Oh n- not on an extremely hot day. Mm-hmm. Um, this dog was a pro. She just had she had a screw loose, and yes. she she freaked out every time. She ate crates. She never went into a crate without pooping in it. So, do those dogs exist out there? Yes. You're but talking, they're extremely rare. You're talking, you're talking outliers. So yep. I, I don't want people to think that like that that there isn't pathology that cannot be dealt with. Um, just like humans, every once in a while, one is born with some some sort of sociopathy. That you know, serial killers that were raised in great households, you know, whatever, yes. you know, so that so, there's no reason to believe that can't exist in dogs. <laughs> if your puppy's a serial killer, maybe you can't crate train it. But the number of times I see short hair and doodles, I'm throwing you guys under the bus, <laughs> going, I can't crate train my puppy. They can't be crate trained. I don't believe it. I don't. Yeah. Something's not working. And f- definitely reach out for professional help. Something's not working because you will be reaching out for professional help when your dog is, you know, eating something or got into something they shouldn't or is destroying your life in other ways. Um, how long can a dog be left in a crate? Depends on the age of the dog. Um, puppies, you know, eight weeks old, four hours maybe. Um, and again, by 12 weeks old, they should be able to be left overnight. I would be very um, okay with leaving my 12-week-old puppy for maybe six hours during the day crated. Um, but, you know, that time in the crate can escalate quickly. So you shouldn't have a 12-week-old puppy and be like, oh, I don't know if I can go out to dinner without it with it being in the crate. Things like that are totally fine by the time they're 12 weeks old. Um, and then once you have an adult dog, it's totally fine to leave them in the crate eight hours during the day. Sure. And I mean, I want to, you know, stress something here. People stress out about that. And that's one thing I, people really feel this sense of guilt about leaving their dogs in crates for extended periods of time. And I would say, you know, if you've got the opportunity and you're just being lazy and not taking your dog out of the crate, that's different. Um, but also it's not so much about, the amount of time that they're out of the crate, it's the quality of the time that they're mm-hmm. out of the crate. Your dogs need to be stimulated. They mm-hmm. need to have structure out of the crate as well. And they and they need physical exercise and mental stimulation. Yep. And you know, that's what you should be providing. If you're just turning your dog out of the crate to mill about your, your house um, and feeling like you're giving it some sort of gift by doing that, you're really not. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean and and so no, that's not to say there can't be chill time. As we get down the road, um, there needs to be chill time. You need to just have time where you're hanging out with your dog. And that goes for puppies too. Mm-hmm. Um, but always, you know, supervised with the young dogs. And then and with those older dogs, you know, um, you get out and they run a few miles and they play ball and they train and things mm-hmm. like that. Then, yeah, I mean, extended periods of time in the crate are just fine. Yeah, I think any dog would prefer, for one, if you're not home, your adult dog's sleeping. Like yeah. your do- adult dog, not I, as- I have no idea where Althea is right now. They're <laughs> <laughs> probably in bed. Um, your adult dog's sleeping when you're not home. To think that they're, you know, getting some sort of exercise or freedom or something by being out of their crate when you're not home is silly because they're sleeping regardless. And if they're not sleeping, then you've got problems. Yes, happening. exactly. Um, and I think any dog would prefer to spend their whole day in a crate and do something productive when you got home than just 100% of the time lay around the house. Yeah. So. Um, and then I think uh, something we didn't cover, and, and you may be going to this, but just 
that the importance of ritual with those older dogs. I, when I get hmm. up, when I get up every morning, um, and I open the crate door, they run straight to their food bowls mm-hmm. to be fed. They go straight outside and we have our morning routine where they do get to mill about super semi supervised. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about my nine year old, my 13 year old dog. Um, and, uh, and then when it's time for everybody to leave the house, they, as soon as they, everybody starts packing up, they just go stare at the, the cookie jar. And then as soon as I touch the cookie jar, they run straight to their crate yep. and they jump in and they wait for yep. me. And they're, you know, I mean, and then while they're in that crate during the day, they don't make a peep. Nope. You know, so just that's part of your daily life. Correct. Um, okay. My final thing, crating and punishment. Yes. So I often hear you should not punish your dog by putting him in the crate. Um, my response to that is, what does that mean? So if your dog is doing something naughty and you put it in the crate, that is totally fine in my opinion so that is called loss of privilege sure so if you're chewing up something in the house and i cannot give you 100 percent supervision i'm going to put you in the crate and say hey you can't chew that up why i can't supervise you yeah. i do not regard that as you will see the crate as a bad place to be yeah no i i agree i mean that's number one it's a management tool yep so we're just if nothing else you're just getting that dog isolated as opposed to being destructive, Correct. And whether or not you're having any sort of aversive effect. Yep. Now, if you've got questions about whether that's aversive, mm-hmm. go back and listen to that Peroni Blobinov. That he did. He actually went into in depth on timeout and like a rat experiment. Ooh. And it was really really neat because he talked about the more stimulating the environment in general at large, the more aversive the timeout effect was. But if it's just normal life and you're chilling out and whatever and then all of a sudden you get put in time out it doesn't matter really yeah and so it gets and i mean these are these are detailed well-designed experiments interesting and and yeah it's it's really fascinating so you know and this goes to a lot of those force free folks that are you using time yeah and and thinking they're not having an aversive effect they're absolutely having an aversive effect which is okay yeah (laughs) totally fine you know we all every organism on this world is exposed to aversion um, except he, for dogs that are trained by first <laughs> trainers, right? And yeah, we, and he talks a lot about that at the beginning of that podcast. And yeah, yeah, it's great. I how, mean, it's yeah. so fascinating. So, yeah, there's something to be said for that. And it, and it, and it to me, really um, opened my mind to the possibilities of the use of crate as an aversive and, in a good way. You yeah. Know? And so, so something yeah, to so consider. End of the day, your dog is not going to see the crate as punishment yeah. when you do that. Um, also, along that line, for our adult dogs, you can absolutely correct them in the crate for naughty behavior. If you have a dog that's chewing on the crate or whining or barking in the crate and they are e-collar conditioned and they understand the e-collar, that's going to be key here. If they understand the e-collar, you can absolutely correct them in the crate for unwanted behavior. Yeah. So if you have an eight-month-old dog that's still whining in the crate and they've already been e-collar conditioned, they already understand how to turn it off, they understand punishment, Put your e-collar on and correct them for the whining. They will be fine. They will not hate the crate. That is a contingent punishment, which is okay. Yep. You know, right? You're performing a bad behavior. You uh, you you receive some behavior, receive some positive punishment, and it becomes less likely to Mm -hmm. occur in the future. That's an appropriate use. And that's, we're talking about dogs that have been collar conditioned. We're not strapping an e-collar to a dog that's never sensed that and blasting them in their crate. (laughs) Yes. Right? We're not drawing some sort of association between being in that crate and something terrible happening. Right. And by that point in your puppy's life, if they are eight months old, they should have 
so much good experience in the crate that you will absolutely have no effect on them wanting to be in their crate by doing that. Not making superstitious behaviors out of these things. And so, I mean, that, that we got three more podcasts worth of stuff to talk about as far as the e-collar is concerned and what contingent punishments are Mm -hmm. and how, and, and non-contingent, uh, pain is and things of that nature. But, um, you know, I hope you guys got something out of this. I think it was a perfect, uh, kind of add on to our last, um, to our last podcast and moving forward, we're going to talk more about developing, I would say bird dogs and retrievers. I want to make sure we, we go down those lines. And if you guys have any questions about other types of hunting dogs, maybe it's something we can explore for Mm -hmm. you. Um, but you know, so now we've got our puppy, we understand what the crate is. We understand general lifestyle things and, and now we can move on to doing work. We can talk about bird exposure, gunfire exposure, um, creating independence in certain contexts while we also at practice, uh, obedience in other contexts, um, getting to that place where you get the dog of your mind's eye. Uh, and it starts at puppyhood and it starts with environmental management. Anything else regarding the crate before we start wrapping this bad boy up? I think that's it. If anyone has any questions, you're always feel to always free to reach out. Okay. So, and speaking of reaching out guys, I still have some space available for my summer retrieve and water program. Um, anyone interested, I would say really, I can take on some retrievers and we'll get some good work done. I hope to send them home with a, with a cold blind and maybe some swim by work. Uh, but really, you know, my target audience, uh, for this program is going to be those folks either thinking of challenging, a NAVD utility test down the road or having uh, a continental um, versatile pointing breed that they want uh, to be doing technical water work and retrieving work um, down the line. So please reach out to me in regards to that. September for bird work is actually starting to book up pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're thinking of early fall and getting that tune up on your dog, please. Also, there's been a maybe just a little confusion with some of my clients. If you guys are out here listening to that about what, what a basic pointing program is versus an advanced pointing program, a basic pointing program is if you send me a dog I've never had before and I need to develop my own handle on that dog and go through my own bird and gunfire protocol to get it there. Now you may have a dog that has been exposed to birds and gunfire and is e-collar conditioned. And my job is relatively easy. But if that didn't happen with me in the first place, there's no guarantee that it's going to be smooth for me. So I, I want you to know, like we, we work these six week increments and we're going to get out of the dog what the dog is willing to give us. And so there is no guarantee that that dog is going to come home steady to wing shot and fall <laughs> If, if you send me a dog that you think is, is a good basic hunting dog, or even if it's a dog that's been through my basic program, you know, that it's a moving target and steadiness is, is, is a long-term objective and you must play a role. So don't send it to me expecting everything to be perfect when it gets home without influence from you. And, and what I really need from my clients or my prospective clients is to know that we're entering into a relationship here that's long-term. If you send me, I'm not, I don't take your dog for a year and I'm not going to campaign your dog forever without sending it home. It needs to go home. It needs to, at the very least have some, you need to have a basic understanding of how to handle that dog and to maintain certain behaviors and to kind of keep working towards certain objectives. 
we, what I can give you is six hard weeks of work that are going to get your dog, advance your dog as far as I can take it. Mm -hmm. But the reason I run these six week programs is because I, I think many of the problems that I traditionally ran into when I just took dogs month to month forever were I could get your dog to a great place for me. But when I turned it over, um, especially if you and I weren't on the same page, it wasn't going to hold up very long or we weren't going to be able to advance the ball down the field. So please know that. And I want you, you know, I want you to become a member of the team. I want to be a member of your team if we do this thing together. And so it's not just a, you send it to me and it's wham, bam, done. It's, it's going for the life of your dog. So I just wanted to get, make that point clear to anybody out there listening. Guys, please reach out to us. I can't think of anything else I need to say. Um, as always, thanks for listening. And, uh, and we'll look forward to talking to you on the next one. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation, to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today.